If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. The only thing necessary for evil to prevail is that good men and women do nothing. I am simply a mouthpiece for good people from around the world who want to make a difference. Engagement and the involvement of ordinary people is what is going to change our criminal justice system. Many have tried and failed. The only difference between them and me is I'm bringing an army with me. This is Truth and Justice. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Truth and Justice. This is your Friday follow-up episode for episode number 404, Help from Above the Border. I'm your host, Bob Ruff. I'm your co-host, Mike Bussing. In episode 404, we heard directly from George's fiance, Tamara Parsons. And she did a great job of breaking down not only George's trial, but what's going on in his habeas hearings, and even fills in on how she came to be George's fiance. Tamara did a great job. It was a great interview, and it generated a lot of questions, both about this particular episode and about the case in general, and even about Texas's criminal justice system in general. Yeah, we got a bunch here from the listeners, so why don't we get right into it? Listener Lisa writes to us, so help me out. Did the police have actual audio of the robbery from the Valero incident? Because they kept saying that they had George on tape. But was that from the robbery itself, a subsequent recording of George's voice, or did they have both? So this has been kind of confusing me since the beginning of this, and, and Tamara helped clear it up a little bit, and I'm still not sure I have it exactly right. And we, we do want to get Tamara on the Friday follow-up, um, but I, have, I haven't talked to her yet this week. Uh, I know last week the issue was she couldn't record until late at night, and it's middle of the day right now when we're trying to get this done. So uh, we may end up adding her in here uh, to answer this a little later. But my understanding is that they used the voice recognition in order to tie the robberies together, not necessarily to tie George to the robberies. So meaning they already pegged George as the robber of the 7-Eleven, and then they used the recorded voice from the actual robber, not from George, from the Valero robbery, and played that for, I believe, Melissa Keene, and asked her if it was the same voice, or it may have been vice versa. But the point was to say that whoever did this robbery was the same person who did that one. And then, of course, they ultimately convicted George of the 7-Eleven robbery. So if they were trying to pin the same robber on both crimes, why was George only charged with the one robbery? The state knew that their case was going to fall apart with a second trial. For They charged him with several of the robberies. And I know for a fact they were going to, I believe with the Copperas Cove robbery, uh, that they were going to take him to trial on after the 7-Eleven robbery. They just ended up dropping the charges. And it, I think it speaks volumes to the fact that they knew. They knew that George Powell was not the robber. 
They were able to get the conviction in the 7-Eleven robbery, I think in large part because they caught the defense off guard with Michael Knox's testimony. But like George said, when we heard from him in episode two, after that trial, they saw what the state was trying to pull and George knew how to defend himself then. And uh, he had different attorneys and they were they would they knew to have experts come in to kind of discredit the photogrammetry work. So they ended up just dropping it. So but but that's why he didn't get convicted of all of them, because they were they did the one and then they were going to try to do the other one. And they just I think they just knew their state their case was going to fall apart. OK, I've got a tweet here from and I hope I get the name right. Malaka. Malaka writes, what happens if they find the real perpetrator? If he's not out committing crimes, is there a statute of limitations on this case? This was actually a really good question, uh, and I didn't—I had never thought about it. And then it occurred to me that you know, other than you know, murder, in most cases there is a statute of limitations. So I asked Allison Clayton yesterday about this uh, because, by my research, it looked like the statute of limitations would have been about five years. And Allison responded, as far as she knows that there is a clear five-year statute of limitations on robbery in Texas. So what that means is that the actual robber at this point, because this was 2008, so we're nine years ago, the actual robber at this point is actually at zero risk of prosecution. There's, and there may be certain things that can stop the clock from running uh, as far as the statute of limitations, but none of those seem to be apparent here. And I didn't have time with Allison to get really deeply into it. But on the surface, it seems it's a five-year statute of limitations. And I know that the, the clock starts running when they find out that a crime has been committed, when authorities find out that a crime has been committed. So say someone, well, I guess I guess murder, there would be no statute of limitations. But as an example, if someone was like missing for years and years and years, and then they found out that she was actually... This came up in Payne Lindsay's uh, Up and Vanished, this, okay. this kind of exact thing here. So there's no statute of limitations on murder, but there is for accessory to murder. Uh, that's a normal felony, and it has a five- or seven-year statute or whatever. Well, it was over... The t- period of time since when the murder happened was long since over that statute of limitations. So someone that dealing that is you know on the hook for an accessory charge in their case, it wasn't determined that Tara Grinstead, in that case, was actually murdered until this winter. Right. You know, when the, when they, they caught, uh, there's Ryan Dukes and Bo Dukes, I'm not, I'm not all that familiar with the case, but one of them uh, came forward, they found the remains of the body, it sounds like, there was a confession. So even though the statute of limitations on the surface seems to have already run, because it's been over seven years since the murder, authorities were not aware that there was a murder until this year. So that's when the clock would start running, uh, as soon as they found out that there was a murder. In this case, they knew there was a robbery on that day, on June 9th, 2008, and they got the wrong guy for certain. But once five years had run by, as far as I know, uh, the real robber is not going to be on the hook for this at all. It can't be prosecuted because of the statute of limitations. Hopefully that's maybe incentive for the real robber or people who knew the real robber to actually come forward. Yeah, and so that that is that's why it was a really good question, and it's very important because you know it, it could be you know I've maintained all along that there is at least one person, probably several people that know that absolutely know who committed these robberies, but you know it could be a loved one or it could be a, a brother, sister, whatever you know it could be their their husband. Who knows who might know about this? But even though it may be weighing on them that the wrong person is spending all this time in prison, at the same time, they don't want to then send their loved one to prison on the other hand. 
So the situation we find ourselves in now is anyone who knows something about who committed these robberies can come forward and right this wrong. I know you don't want to, if you happen to be listening, I know that you don't want to you know, throw your loved one under the bus, so to speak, uh, and, and rat them out. But, but there are no risk of prosecution. But what, what's happening is an innocent man, a good guy, has been serving all this time in prison. He's been in prison now for eight or nine years between jail and prison. And he's still got damn near two decades to go. Think about 28 years of your life. That's what George Powell has been sentenced to, 28 years, a quarter of a century for doing nothing wrong. So if, if you have information, please come forward with it, either to the, the ideally to the local authorities uh, or even bring it to me so at least we can put it out publicly so that it make, we make it very aware that the authorities have this information. But come forward and right this wrong. Think about it if it was your loved one, someone you cared about, that was sentenced to 28 years in prison for something they didn't do, and you might hold the key to setting them free. And I, I know I'm, uh, I'm, I'm speaking to a, an imaginary person right now, but we just never know when, when someone who actually has the information that could break the case wide open is listening. So I just wanted to make that message clear. And thank you, Malika. I, I'm, we're both terribly sorry if we got your name pronounced wrong. Yeah. But thank you for asking the question, because honestly, it's something I hadn't considered. Uh, but as, yeah, as far as we can tell, the statute of limitations has run, and the real robber is at zero risk of being prosecuted for this crime. All right, next we've got a message here from Julia. Sort of a general question, and I understand if you and Mike don't have the time to do extra research, but I've been wondering about minimum sentences. They vary by crime type, obviously, but do they also vary by state? And who sets them? Conversely, is there such a thing as a maximum sentence limit for a particular type of crime? 28 years for less than $1,000 just blows my mind. Shouldn't we limit that type of sentence to, say, one year max? Thanks, and keep up the awesome work. This is another really good question, and I saw some discussion that was generated from that post on the fan page. And there's a lot of good discussion there, but one thing you have to remember is, so let's forget for a minute about the fact that George Powell is innocent. And you're right, not only under $1,000, the, the total amount that he got that the robber made off with was 12 bucks. Mm-hmm. It was like 11 or $12. There seemed to be some discrepancy there and a couple of cartons of cigarettes. So very little property value gone. And so a lot of people are like, this, these sentences should be less than a year. But the reason that the sentence was so long was because the robber used a gun. And I disagree with saying that it should be less than a year. I mean, you know that I'm, you know, I'm, I'm all about bringing real truth and justice and righting these wrongs. But I'm sorry, if you pull a gun out and threaten someone's life, you don't know what that does to a person long term. You know what it does to, you know, post traumatic stress. It's very, very scary to believe that you're gonna die. You know, to right. have someone threaten you with your life and point. So that's what makes it such a long sentence. Not the amount of money that he made off with. If he had just walked up and, and stole 12, like reached into the cash register and grabbed 12 bucks and a couple of cartons of cigarettes, yeah, it's going to be a misdemeanor. It's going to be nothing. But you point a gun at someone, and the, the implication there is, if you don't give me what I want, I'm going to shoot and kill you. Uh, there's a lot of emotional trauma that goes to the victim with that. So, you know, I believe the sentence should, should be longer. I think if you don't actually, I, I don't, when you watch these videos, and again, if you haven't seen them, go to the YouTube channel, Truth the Justice Podcast, and watch the videos. This is just the weirdest robbery. I don't know. I don't know if you agree with that, Mike, but it's just a weird robbery. I mean, the the, the robber himself looks very calm and collected and kind of nonchalant. Yeah. And even Melissa Keene, the clerk, seems very 
it's hard to tell from a video and I, and I don't want to, I don't want to take away from her feelings and her trauma at all, but just seems very calm too. Yeah. It doesn't look from the tapes. It doesn't look like the, the situation was that intense. Uh, even though there was a gun in the equation, it just seems like they were both, like you said, pretty, pretty calm. Yeah. And I, to be honest, it doesn't look to me from the angle that he ever even actually pointed the gun at her. Mm-hmm. He kind of like displayed the gun. He sets the gun on the counter and just kind of pointed it in the general direction. But, you know, he doesn't stick the gun in her face. Right. He just kind of, you know, he, he walks up to the counter and says, you know, give me all the money in the drawer and and kind of like sets the gun up. Like, you see this? See what I can do here? And she seems to react very you know, like like she testified to or, or wrote in her statement. She thought he was joking at first. Mm-hmm. And then she's like, well, here, here's the money. And then as soon as she gives him the the, the money, he asked for the lottery money and the hundreds or whatever. She says that she doesn't have any. And you watch the video. The Robert puts the gun back in his pocket. He doesn't even continue to hold it on her. You know, he he brandishes the gun to get her attention. She starts getting the money. He says, okay, I want some cigarettes. Puts the gun back in his pocket for the second half of the robbery. And the whole thing was 15 seconds. And takes the cigarettes and leaves. It looks like he had no intention of harming her. And, and it seems like she got that impression, too. Yeah, it seems that way. Now, she testified at the hearing earlier last week and, you know, said that she's still traumatized by it today. Mm-hmm. And, and she very well may be. I mean, I haven't had somebody point a gun at me. But, yeah, I just looked at... I, I've seen videos of armed robberies, you know, where you have a very violent, aggressive offender, you know, pointing a gun at somebody's face, pressing it against their temple, telling them, I'm going to kill you if you don't do this. And this video is just not that at yeah, all. He didn't raise his voice. He mm, didn't raise his voice, didn't even raise the gun. Mm-hmm. You know, the gun is literally his, his hand is holding the gun on the counter. Now, now to get back to the questions, minimums and maximums do vary by state. Uh, it, it's, it's state to state. It's decided by, I, I don't know the exact answer to this. I assume it's set by state legislation somehow. It has to be in order for it to become law. In this case, Georgia's sentence kind of splits the middle. So uh, for an armed robbery, the minimum sentence is five years and the maximum is 99 years. So George could have got a sentence as little as five or he could have been spending the rest of his life in prison, which to me, 99 years for not actually committing a violent act as far as actually harming another human. I guess I should say that because it is a violent act to hold someone at gunpoint. But to spend the rest of your life in prison without actually causing bodily harm, I mean, I mean, it's a tangled web to talk about because I don't in any way ever want to take away from the victims, you know, and what it does to them. But pointing a gun at someone doesn't seem worthy to me of spending the rest of your life in prison. You know, um, but anyways, five to ninety nine, George was given twenty eight, which is kind of an odd number, kind of not quite in the middle, but, you know, about, you know, a little over a little under a third of what the maximum sentence was. And those minimums and maximums are set by each individual state, similarly to the fact how some states have the death penalty, others don't. Um, others have, you know, a maximum sentence of life without parole where, you know, they can put you to death in another. So uh, it's all state by state to answer the question. All right, next we hear from listener Gina. In regards to the June 9th 7-Eleven robbery, just wondering if the police were able to get fingerprints from the door handle or the counter. No, it's my understanding that they were not. They didn't get any usable prints. Because I, I think it was, I don't remember if it was the Valero or the 7-Eleven. I think it was the 7-Eleven where Melissa Keene said, maybe it was even the Mickey's. I'm not even sure which one. One of them, specifically the victim, told the police he put his hand right there to try to get a print. They couldn't get in. I mean, it's a convenience source. There's lots of people in and out. There's fingerprints all over. Right. Okay, and this one comes from Sarah. 
this may have been covered when you speak to Grant Fredericks, but I was wondering if, in the store, the cashier is up on a platform, or is she on the same level as the customers? I asked because I know at my local convenience store, the cashier is elevated slightly behind that counter, and that would affect the height comparison. No, we know the answer to this specifically. It was testified to by Melissa Keene at trial. Uh, the floor was the exact same level on both sides. The only difference was on the cashier's side, they had like a black foam mat, uh, where you see a lot of times it's to help people's back give them a little bit of cushion because it was a tile floor. Yeah. Uh, but that is, as she described it, maybe a half an inch. Okay. But other than that little half inch discrepancy because of the foam mat, no, it's the exact same height, uh, the floor on both sides of the counter. Gotcha. Jennifer writes, in 404, there was a discussion about George Powell being in a photo lineup. How do investigators choose which photos to go into a lineup, and where do they get the photos from? Are they usually mugshots from prior arrests? Are the subjects who are looking at the photos given any other info about the person they are looking at? Well, I, I guess the only way I can answer that question is how it should be done. I don't think necessarily it's always done this way. But yeah, typically they're mugshots. And what should be done is, say, for example, in this case, you have all these witness statements who are saying that the the, the highest or tallest, I mean, uh, witness description of the suspect was five foot ten. So what we have consistently is everyone is saying that we have a white male between the, the descriptions range from five foot six to five foot ten, slender, goatee, mustache. Uh, so we know that those are some things that are consistent across all five. So what should be done is a photo lineup should be created. For people that fit that description, be because you know people can be led towards picking somebody out of a lineup that's completely wrong and not realize they've been duped, so to speak. Imagine, let's say you're Melissa Keene, and you know it was a white guy, and he was, she says, five foot six, slender, mustache, goatee, and so the police bring you a lineup with six photos in it, and it's five black guys and George Powell. Well, e even if George Powell really doesn't look much like the robber, your mind is going to jump straight to him and say, okay, well, he looks the closest to the person. Uh, and, you're, and, you're, and your brain can even connect those two things. You know, a really good example of what I'm talking about, and I'm, I'm rambling a little bit, but I just, it just clicked in my mind. Uh, when I was watching Jim Clemente and Jim Fitzgerald's show, Manhunt Unabomber, that's based on Fitz's uh, investigation into the Unabomber, I had no idea that the iconic sketch drawing of the Unabomber that was on, I think, Time Magazine or People Magazine, that was all over the place, still is, was a recreation of the original sketch where uh, the victim, one of the victims, the witness that actually saw the Unabomber leaving the bomb, uh, she gave the description to a sketch artist. He drew the sketch. And then it was, I think, a couple years later, and I'm, I'm not, don't quote me on this, but it was, it was around then. They went back to redo it, uh, to redo the sketch, and they had her describe, I think they had lost the original, or I don't remember the reason why, but they, they redid it, and that redone sketch is the one that got put out all over the, the magazines and the newspapers, and, and it's just been iconic for that case. What we learned in that show was the fact that that sketch really looked nothing like the first sketch. That sketch looks exactly like the guy that did the original sketch. The artist. Oh, that's bizarre. Yeah. So uh, what happened is the way it was explained on the show was that when she did the original sketch, her mind associated what she was that she was describing the sketch of the suspect with the guy that was sitting there drawing the sketch. And then years later, or whenever it was, she was asked to redo it. 
she described what she had in her mind. Her mind had connected the two, and she described the sketch artist. Hmm. Uh, but he really didn't look much like the Unabomber. Supposedly, the actual original sketch does look like Ted Kaczynski. So anyway, the way it should be done is there should be people that are are similar there. If If you have a suspect description like they had, there should have been several people that all fit that description. I don't know who was in the photo lineup for Melissa Keene or the other witnesses either, but that's the way it should be done. And along those lines, I also wanted to touch on the fact that I think if they had done a actual lineup where they put suspects in person standing in a lineup to pick them out, George Powell would have never been arrested for this. Because when speaking with, with Tamara a couple of weeks ago, I asked her to send me some old pictures of George and things like that. And she sent me some stuff from MySpace, actually, hmm. uh, from back in the day. And I looked at George and I'm like, oh, I, you know, and we've always maintained that Melissa Keene hasn't done any, you know, she didn't intentionally identify the wrong person. Uh, and I can see how she ended up landing on George Powell. Now, if you look at George Powell's picture from back then and compare, put it side by side with the, the video evidence with the robber, if you freeze frame it, it looks nothing like him. But if you just look at the robbery suspect's face and then say, I don't know, days later, you look at a picture that only shows George Powell's face, it could be easy. It would be super easy to misidentify him because he was a white guy. His face was heavier than the robber. I mean, the, the robber had really, I guess, very pronounced cheekbones, uh, very slender face, and George Powell didn't quite have that. But George had the exact same facial hair. He had a goatee and a mustache that was exactly the same as the robber. So, you know, when she's looking at that photo lineup and she's only looking at the face, and, and, and remember, she only, we figured, got about two seconds of looking at the at the robber. And she remember, and he was wearing sunglasses, and she was distracted by the gun and everything else. So she remembers things that stand out, like the goatee. You know, what stands out in his face? And then she looks at a, a, a picture of a guy with that exact same facial hair and is a white guy. You don't know what his hair looked like because he was wearing a hat. You don't know what his eyes looked like because he was wearing glasses. And so I can absolutely see how she selected him because if you're only looking at him, say, from the nose to the chin, and you're looking at those two photos, you know, weeks or months apart, yeah, they they could fit for sure. Uh, and so I think that's what happened. And, and so I'm really curious, too. I'd like to actually find out. Uh, it's one thing that uh, I think now that I'm remembering and I'm going to ask Allison about if we can find the photo lineup that they actually used, because I want to know if they had other photos of people that looked similar or if they were all over the map. But the reason I said that if they did it uh, in an in-person lineup, George would have never been selected because the other thing that she noticed, because she noted it in a report, was that the guy was not tall. He was five foot six inches. She described him as five six. So as soon as she looked at a guy standing there towering over everyone at 6'3", not a chance in hell. Um, but again, just looking at the face, I can see why she identified George Powell. All right, and Brandy writes, why is the state fighting this case so hard? It's not like he was accused of murdering someone. He's accused of robbing one store. Is it because he can sue them if they admit he was wrongfully convicted? Well, yeah, I think that's part of it. I'm going to say, in my personal humble opinion, this is an extremely dishonest district attorney's office. I mean, they, they they should be absolutely ashamed of themselves for what they're doing because there's no question at all that he didn't do it. So, so again, the, the question is, why do they keep fighting it? Well, I think it's a number of reasons. One, people want to, you know, prosecutors have a tendency to want to defend their actions. You know, they don't, they don't want to admit they made a mistake. And, you know, like we talked about with Allison, there, there's other uh, DA's offices throughout the country and even the state of Texas where, 
they their take on it is well if we did make a mistake then we don't want to live with that you know we want to at least fix it but so admitting a mistake means you admitted you just stole 10 years out of this guy's life people like this that are going to fight like this to me it's just they've lost all touch with humanity you know they get so caught up in the adversarial nature of their job and fighting for the finality of justice uh that they think that they got with their with their verdict that they're just going to dig their heels in and keep fighting because they just can't admit they're wrong. But yeah, then the other thing is Texas has legislation, one of the few states in the country that does, that awards anyone who's been wrongfully convicted a monetary amount for every year they serve behind bars and for the rest of their lives. And, you know, that was one of the things in Kerry Max Cook's case. You know, he he was in for so long, he was looking at millions of dollars. And I may have this wrong, but off the top of my head, I believe in Texas, it's, I think, $80,000 for every year you were wrongfully incarcerated. You know, so 80 grand times nine years, that's a pretty good chunk of change. You know, it's $72,000. And then I think it's then 40000 for the rest of the, every year for the rest of their life. And also, let's not forget, too, the political aspect of it. District attorneys are elected. So you know, if, if they're the guy that says, oh, we wrongfully convicted this person and they let somebody out that a previous administration said was guilty, and then on top of that, it ended up costing the state a million dollars because of the mistake. A lot of places, it depends on the mentality that people have in that particular demographic, but would look as that as a weakness and they want to get him out of there. He just costs us a bunch of money. So I think that it's a combination of trying to protect the money. You know, we look at other cases that we've worked where, you know, you come to an Alfred plea. And a lot of times what you're seeing and what we may be seeing in George Powell's case is the state positioning, you know, they're playing chess and they're positioning for an Alfred plea. You know, they, they they will try to fight as long as they can to kind of box the the defendant into a corner where they kind of think they're probably, you know, the state knows if we continue with this, we're going to lose, but that we could make that process take years. Look at Anand Syed. Now, it's been a year and a half since his conviction was vacated. He's still in prison. Yeah. You know, and it could be another two years still or more for this to work itself out. So they they, they could dig their heels enough to get the defendant to the point where they can say, look, we can either keep battling this out for the next five years where you're still losing more and more years of your life, or you can plead guilty right now and we'll let you go. And that would be very easy for a district attorney to do in George Powell's case because no one died. You know, a lot of times the, the, the DA has to worry about what do the victims think. Letting a person out of prison who they're claiming they believe is guilty. But in this case, you're talking about a guy who was convicted of stealing 12 bucks and four cartons of cigarettes. And holding a gun on a counter. So I, I think, and he served nine years for that. I think with clear conscience, the DA could say, we'll offer him an Alfred plea. He, you know, he cops to nine years and we let him off and it's all over with. And that's a tough position for any defendant to be in because that means you go home today as opposed to maybe going home years from now. But at the same time, you're now a convicted felon for the rest of your life. You'll never get rid of that. And you don't have any access to any compensation for what's been done to you. And that's one of the things with anybody who's ever taken an Alfred plea, you know, in Kerry Max Cook in Texas is another great example of it where, you know, he, he got out, he got to go home, saved his life. He was on death row, but he's still now a convicted murderer. You know, that affects your ability to get a job. It affects a lot of things in your life and has no way to get any kind of financial compensation. He can't sue the state for wrongfully convicting him because technically he pled guilty. And I think a lot of what we see here is a state who knows where they're going to end up is offering an Alfred plea, but it's like they're trying to set up the defendant to put them in a position where they're willing to take it. 
Okay, and then Kristen had an interesting thought. She wants to know, can the Army make a real change regarding the use of jailhouse informants? They can, but it requires action on a legislative level, which means, as Allison Clayton said when she was on a couple of weeks ago, you need to know who you're voting for. You need to get involved in and voice your opinion to your, your congressmen, to senators, just to, to all the lawmakers locally and statewide and even nationwide. I mean, that's all you can do because ultimately this is legislation that needs to be passed. And, and as we found out, Texas has passed some legislation. But in my opinion, jailhouse informants shouldn't be allowed at all. There's just too many things that can go wrong, and it's just a recipe for disaster. Um, but yeah, I, I don't, I don't have a, a real good answer for you, Kristen, as far as what you can specifically do other than be involved in the legislative process, uh, wherever you live. Yeah, that's really, really good advice. One last thing here before we wrap it up. One question we've been getting a lot. I think just about every listener wants to know, are we getting royalties for the new CBS TV show, Wisdom of the Crowd? Uh, I think the check must be in the mail for that. <laughs> yeah. Any, have you watched it, Mike? I did watch the first episode. Was it? Is it as similar as people are? Because I haven't seen it. The main component to it is that, you know, there's this guy that's crowdsourcing. I think it's the murder of his daughter, actually. But yeah, really similar to what you're doing here. People started talking to me about it a while ago, and, and, and they keep asking about it. So the answer is no. I mean, I've had ton, I mean, tons and tons of emails and tweets and Facebook messages uh, that are saying that they, they thought that they took the idea from us or that we were involved in it somehow. And the answer is no. I don't know anything about it, and, and we're certainly not getting any royalties from it. So maybe we should contact CBS and see if they want to write us a check. Hey, it sounds good. And I haven't watched it. And the other question I keep getting is, am I going to watch it? And the answer to that is probably not. And that's not, be, you know, I'm sure it's a great show. I, I, I don't, I don't have any idea, but I don't, I don't watch a lot of television to begin with. And I won't watch this for the same reason I don't watch Chicago Fire um, or a lot of shows like that. You know, when I was a fireman, I just, and it's part of the reason why a lot of lawyers don't like to watch Law and Order because, you know, fictionalized versions of everyday things are never, well, not never, but typically not accurate. No, you know, so like for me, like watching a firefighter show, it's like, come on, that's not right. I can't even enjoy it because that's not right. That doesn't happen. It doesn't look like that. You know, here's a little clue for you on the fired up firefighter side. You know what it looks like inside of a burning building? All the shots you have inside the burning. If you want to know what it looks like inside of a burning building, take your right hand and, and put your elbow up and put your right hand over your face so it covers completely both of your eyes. That's what it looks like inside of a fire. So anytime I'm watching, it's black. You can't see anything. Yeah. You see nothing. You have to rely completely on touch and sound when you're inside of a fire. So that's when I'm watching a show like that where they are, uh, you know, they, they're showing the guys walking through a fire. And it's it's just that's just not how it is, which is fine. But it, it just always bugs me knowing what it's supposed to be like. So same reason I probably won't watch this show. Also, like I said, don't watch much TV. Yeah, I kind of liked it. I'm not sure if I'm going to watch any more of it, but it was all right. And I think that does it for this week's Friday follow-up. Thanks, everybody, for all your engagement and support. And please make sure you keep in touch after the main episodes drop on Sundays. Go on to Facebook. Go on to Twitter. Send us emails. Call the tip line. We haven't had voicemails on the Friday follow-up for a while. People kind of forgot that we have a voicemail line. Uh, but definitely get engaged. Send us your thoughts, theories, and ideas, your questions, your comments. Uh, the, the, these Friday follow-ups are all about you. So make sure that you're getting involved and so you can be a part of the show. Uh, and until then, this week, we've got two days from today on Sunday, episode 405 is going to drop. And that's when we're going to finally hear directly from the real 
photogrammetry expert, Mr. Grant Fredericks. Truth and Justice is a production of NBI Studios. Mike Bussing is our executive producer. All music for the show was created by PutThemInASong.com. I think Amanda Meyer for designing and creating our Friday follow-up logo. Thank you to our transcription team, Sarah McConnell, Anna Dindorf, Britta Bliss, and Sarah Mueller. Also, thank you to Desiree Dunn for printing and mailing all of the transcripts. And thank you to Chris Brinkley of SylviaConsultants.com and also newcomer Katie Ross, who is working with Chris right now to get the website up to date and is eventually going to be taking over the website design and maintenance. And as always, I want to thank all of you for all of your engagement and support. Keep sending in those thoughts, theories, and ideas to theories at truthandjusticepod.com. You can like our Facebook page or follow us on Twitter at truthjusticepod. However you do it, stay engaged, stay in touch. But as for now, we're signing off. I'm Bob Ruff. And I'm Mike Bussing. And this has been Truth and Justice. get a sound check on you mic check one two three mic check one two three what are you making fun of me no i just want you're low bye bye miss american pie drove my chevy to the levee but the levee was dry come on everybody just so weird drove my chevy to the... <laughs> you're ruining it i was really yeah, it's so much hard in that just trying to test out this new microphone How's it sound though with the new what I want to know is how does it sound with the new microphone? I want you talk instead of sing for starters. Everyone knows you test microphones by singing. Oh man. Honestly though, how'd I do? It was solid. Yeah. There were, yeah, it was solid. <laughs> I just want to keep singing it. I, I want you to, to reel it in now, you know? <laughs> Minimums and maximums do vary by state. <laughs> Sorry. <coughs> <coughs> We high five it. Let's do that fist bump thing we did earlier. All three or just the standard? All three. Uh-huh. Okay. All right. Come on. Down. Bring it in. Up. Boom. Do we blow it up? Let's do it again. This time we'll blow it up. All right. Ready? Boom. Bye bye, Miss American Pie. 50 seconds of this shit, you know? And they uh, would sing. <laughs> This is not the, this is not definitely not the Them way good to start boys. off a conversational <laughs> episode, you know? You're just like Them slowly good pushing me into drinking a whiskey bad and rye. Singing <laughs> this will be the day that I die. Oh, that's so going in the blue for real. <laughs>